You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. In Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, if we're doing a little bit of a, a recap, this, this would be, uh, I think, what, episode four of this Netflix series? So previously on Galatians. Uh, Paul, has, Paul has gone to great lengths at this point to defend both his apostolic authority and the authenticity of his message right out of the gate, wasting no time in incorporating elements of the gospel message into the very greeting itself before he even gets to the content of the letter. We'll get into more detail as the letter unfolds as to what Paul means by this gospel, this good news. But again, right out of the gate, declaring that Jesus gave himself for our sins and was raised from the dead. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the cross and empty tomb, the basic tenets of the Christian faith, this redemptive work of Jesus, Paul says, to deliver we who otherwise would be bound in the darkness of captivity. To free us, Jesus came not only from sin's penalty, yes and amen to that, but to sin's power. Someday to free us from sin's presence for all eternity. The greatest rescue story the world has ever known. In fact, any and all other rescue stories drawing on borrowed capital. The good news entrusted to uh, the, the former Saul of Tarsus, once an insolent opponent and persecutor of the church, The man whom we now know to be the Apostle Paul. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Galatians. An apostle not from men nor through man. Paul's apostolic authority and message of divine origin, Paul tells us. Commissioned he was. Not by the Jerusalem church nor the church in Antioch. Not even by Peter himself. Rather commissioned Paul was by God the Father and the risen Christ. Unlike those seeking to draw the Galatians away from the true gospel. The lurking threat leading Paul to follow his words of greeting, not with his standard expressions of gratitude, encouragement, and prayer, which we see in most of Paul's letters, including his writing even to the church in Corinth, that jacked up church that was filled with overwhelming divisiveness and immorality. Paul would say, I'm grateful for you and I'm praying for you. Not so with Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. Immediately following his greeting, chapter 1, verse 6, with a word of rebuke in confronting the lurking threat to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul expresses astonishment. The word translated astonished in the original Greek, the the same word used again and again in the gospel accounts to describe people's response to Jesus' miracles. Paul expressing absolute shock like one having just witnessed a man born blind given sight. Or... 5,000 men and their families fed with the contents of a little boy's lunchbox. The Apostle Paul overwhelmed with amazement. Amazed not not that they're false teachers, as Paul uh, expected and knew all too well that there would always be the danger of false teachers in the church. Rather, astonished that the Galatians are listening to these false teachers and are being swayed by their teaching. That they're turning, as Paul says, to a different gospel a distortion of the good news of Jesus Christ. 
The general argument, as we'll see, being that some were insisting that the Galatian Gentiles be circumcised and submit to the Mosaic law in order to have right legal standing with God and in order to be counted among the true people of God. A reminder, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that threats to the gospel not only lurk out there, so to speak, but too arise at times from within the church. That false teaching doesn't always seek to do away with Christian terminology, but rather at times seeks to co-opt and distort those very terms and ideas. In the words of one pastor and scholar, the most dangerous teachers are the ones who preach a different Christ, but still call him Jesus. That not everyone who professes to be a Christian serves Christ and not every message wrapped in the word gospel is the gospel. The churches of Galatia, and this is only within a year or two of having been planted, these churches, in Paul's estimation, in grave danger. Paul declaring, chapter 1, verse 7, that there is no other gospel. That any distortion of the gospel is no gospel. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not to be tampered with. No free passes, Paul says, chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, for the apostles. No free passes even for the angelic host of heaven. Paul declaring that, that anyone who would preach a different gospel stands under the divine curse of God. Paul himself, having not arrived at nor been taught the gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, but rather having received the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Which, going back to last week, James teased out a, a bit more as we spent some time with Paul's miraculous conversion story, Acts chapter 9, the, the earliest years, too, following his Damascus Road experience, which was shocking to many within the, the early church. Having heard of this man who used to persecute Christians, dragging them off to prison, commending their martyrdom, now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, chapter 1, verse 23. His entire life, leading up to his conversion, preparing him for the very ministry that God had for him among the Gentiles. As you pick up in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul continues to, to lay out some of his background and experience. It says, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running nor had, or had not run in vain. All right, Paul writes this, this letter to the, the churches of Galatia well over a decade after his conversion. The, the first few years of which were spent apart from the other apostles giving support to Paul's argument of having received the gospel from Jesus himself. A few years, as we saw last week after his conversion, making a trip to, to Jerusalem where he spent the better part of a couple weeks with Peter and James, only then to go back out into the surrounding regions pro proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Here in Galatians chapter 2, fast forward, forwarding another decade plus to his second post-conversion visit to the city of Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas and Titus. Setting before those of influence, Paul says, within the Jerusalem church, the gospel that Paul had been proclaiming to the Gentiles. Some scholars believing this visit to coincide with the famous Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, 
After all, there, there are uh, great similarities between what Paul describes here and the expressed concern coming out of the city of Antioch that brought about that famous council. Acts chapter 15 verse 1 tells us that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The believers in Antioch were being exposed to a message of Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. A message which Paul will go on to say to the Galatians removes the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross being that we can do nothing to merit God's love and acceptance. The offense of the cross being that we're so sinful that Jesus had to die for us. That our only hope is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. The similarities between the expressed concerns coming out of Antioch and Galatia, leading some to see Paul's visit described here as coinciding with that famous Jerusalem council where it was formally decreed that the burden of circumcision be removed from Gentile believers. Other scholars believing that the visit Paul describes here in Galatians 2 to be a prior visit to that uh, when the gathering of the Jerusalem council took place. After all, Paul makes no mention here of the decision of, of that council, which would have gone a long way in his denouncement of those false teachers in Galatia. The visit described here more likely a setting of the stage for the, the more formally established gathering and decision that would come just a few years later. Paul here declaring the purpose of the visit to Jerusalem to ensure that he was not running or had not run in vain. Right, which some take to, to mean, because you see this kind of language elsewhere in Paul's writings, that, uh, that Paul was looking to make sure that he was within bounds in proclaiming a message of justification by faith alone, that he wasn't outside the faith. And yet, not only had Paul encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, who had given him the message that he was to proclaim and commissioned him for the task, but two, this second journey to Jerusalem was brought about by a revelation of God, verse two. Meaning that the wires weren't crossed between the Lord and the apostle Paul. Right? Paul would have surely traveled to Jerusalem sooner if he had any question as to whether he was preaching the true gospel. 14 years, that's a long time to proclaim a message that might at the end of the day be out of bounds. No, Paul knew that he was preaching the true gospel, the good news that he had received from Jesus himself. This journey to Jerusalem, brilliant on Paul's part, by the way, not so much about bolstering his own conviction as it was about undoing the influence of the false teachers who were distorting the gospel. To show once and for all that he and those apostles in Jerusalem were united, committed to proclaiming the one and same gospel. So what do you do with the, the language of the danger of Paul having run in vain? Verse 2. I think, and many scholars would land here, that, that Paul's speaking of the fruitfulness of his ministry. That his aim with respect to this visit to Jerusalem is to ensure that all the gospel groundwork, so to speak, that he had laid for years wasn't for nothing. And the creeping in of false teachers and their distortions of the one true gospel Two, to ensure that the church wouldn't end up divided. The dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile having been broken down in Christ. There were those who were, 
who were creating a kind of division that was building up this wall, so to speak. And what better way to get to the heart of the matter than by way of the living, breathing case study known as Titus. You don't know if Titus knew that he was being treated as a case study when he was brought along for this ride, but that's surely what happened. As you pick up in verse 3, even Titus, who was with me, Paul says, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Titus, like Timothy, Paul's protege, whom Paul would go on to leave in church, uh, charge of the churches on the island of Crete. A Greek, Titus was, meaning a, a Gentile, uncircumcised. Circumcision having been established as part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, a 2,000-year-old sacred rite signifying Israel's set-apartness among the nations. And along comes Paul, an apostle to the Gentiles, steeped in Jewish upbringing and tradition, accompanied by an uncircumcised Gentile convert, <laughs> having determined himself that Titus need not be circumcised. Here bringing Titus before the leaders of the Jerusalem church to, to discuss the matter. This is a big deal. This is a big moment. A lot of people looking in on this moment in, in early church history. One might say, well, what about Timothy? I mean, his mother was a Jew, his father a Gentile. Timothy had never been circumcised, perhaps due to the influence of his unbelieving dad. In wisdom, Paul determining it best for Timothy to, to do so before accompanying Paul on his second missionary journey. We read about that in Acts chapter 16. Right? It brings up a fair question, one that, that perhaps those in opposition to Paul were posing. Is Paul himself a hypocrite as it pertains to this whole question of, of circumcision? To which the answer is a resounding no. The difference, and here's where we get to the crux of it all. The difference between the Apostle Paul and the false teachers in Galatia is the difference, as, as R.C. Sproul so succinctly puts it in his commentary, the difference between may and must. Perhaps those words hit close to home for, for some of us in this room this morning. Having been raised in the kind of, of strict environment in which the lines between may and must were blurred. To the lines between may not and must not. Having been taught that certain behaviors and ways of thinking are, are sinful by others committed to imposing their personal convictions as universal law. The blurred lines between may and must, may not and must not. This is what was happening in the churches of Galatia with respect to the matter of circumcision. Those distorting the gospel were teaching that, that a may had to be a must, a requirement to enter the kingdom of God. Philip Ryken in his commentary, he says, this is a perennial danger for the church. Christians are always trying to add something to the gospel. They elevate some aspect of Christianity to a place of supreme importance so that the good news becomes faith in Christ plus something else. 
Usually what gets added to the gospel is something good in itself. Some particular experience of the Holy Spirit, perhaps. Some special ministry, usually the ministry we are involved with. Some methodology for having devotions, growing a church, or raising a family. Some distinctive doctrine or style of worship. Some political or social cause. Some way of doing or of not doing what the world does. But, he says, for the gospel to be the gospel, it has to stand alone. The gospel is Christ plus nothing. To say it another way, yes, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, but two, my hope is built on nothing more. That Paul understood that for Titus to be circumcised would be for Titus to turn from the sweetness of freedom in Christ to the bondage of the law and its requirement of perfect sinless obedience. That's where we're going in this letter. We'll get there soon enough. So that Titus for Paul was a put your money where your mouth is case study. An uncircumcised Gentile who genuinely loved and trusted in Jesus and had an effective fruitful ministry alongside the apostle Paul. Proof that God was at work among and through the Gentiles and with that, that circumcision was not necessary to be counted among God's people. Which those leaders in the church of Jerusalem affirmed, Paul tells us, in not forcing Titus to be circumcised. The planting of a gospel flag in the ground that day. Preserving Titus's blood-bought freedom, verse 4, in contrast to the enslavement uh, of works-based righteousness. Paul says to the churches of Galatia, verse 5, we did that so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And we could go further and say that Paul did that so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for us. He goes on in verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. We'll see in just a moment toward the end of this morning's passage that Paul is here referring to Peter, James, and, and John with, with language that might at first glance appear to be a little demeaning in declaring that what they were made no difference to Paul. And, and yet, Paul has already declared, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 17, that, that those men of Jerusalem were apostles before him. In fact, Paul has the, the highest esteem for, for Peter, James, and John. The, the trouble is that the false teachers of Galatia were putting those men, Peter, James, and John, on a pedestal and doing so in diminishment of Paul's apostolic authority. So that what Paul's doing here is he's, he's making the point that an apostle is an apostle. That Paul's message and the message of those in Jerusalem are one and the same. Which is why he says of those men, they added nothing to me. Meaning that they added nothing to Paul's message. Because it was the same as their message. Because there is only one true gospel. And each and every one of the apostles were proclaiming it. He goes on in verse 7 to say, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, 
For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that is Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Right, Paul, Paul declares that not only did Peter, James, and John not add to his message, but they went so far as to extend the, the right hand of fellowship to him and his co-laborers. Again, not a commissioning of Paul, as Paul had already received his commissioning from Jesus Christ himself. Rather, a simple yet powerful declarative, and envision this in your mind, he is with us. His message is our message. His gospel is our gospel. It was a losing moment for the Judaizers, and praise God for that. An incredibly important win for the early church, for us 2,000 years later. You see something of the gravity of it all in Paul's use of a, a word that perhaps we might be inclined to misunderstand at first glance. The word pillar, verse 9. Our tendency, most of us, to apply such a word to those upstanding people of prominence in the community, a, a pillar of society. And yet that's not what Paul has in mind with his usage of such a word in describing Peter, James, and, and John. The, the word in the original Greek meaning column. It's actually the, the same word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament for the pillars of the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem in his day. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 21, we're told that he set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Joachim. And he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. Right, Paul takes architectural language associated with the Jerusalem temple and applies it to the pillars of God's new temple in Jesus Christ, the church. Which is why Paul would talk the way he does in his letter to the church in Ephesus. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation, the pillars of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The apostles and the prophets foundational pillars with names like those on which Solomon's temple was built. Peter, James, John. And some were saying, but not Paul. Peter, James, and John extending the right hand of fellowship to say Paul's name is there too. He's a pillar just like us. His gospel, the one and same gospel is ours. This temple, the church, made up of living stones, both Jews and Gentiles, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. A professor at the seminary that I attended has written one of the, the better commentaries on Galatians, J.B. Fesco. He says, in trying to tie all this in to the beauty of the gospel, he says, circumcision pointed forward to the saving work of Christ 
who himself underwent the curse of the covenant. The cutting away of the foreskin symbolized either cutting away the body of sin or being cut off from the covenant community. Christ bore the curse on our behalf and his death becomes our death and his life our life. This is what the false teachers and many of the Jews in Paul's day failed to grasp, the earth-shattering significance of Christ's work. Christ did this not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, for anyone who looks to him by faith. This is something he says that so many churchgoers still fail to grasp, that salvation is and always has been by faith alone in Christ alone. The good news the truth, the beauty, hope, the gospel. It's not too difficult to see why Paul would offer up an eager yes and amen in response to the request of Peter, James, and and John that he and his co-laborers remember the, the poor. Particularly that they be mindful of the need of the Jerusalem church to which we know Paul devoted himself throughout his ministry. We read about that in the gathering of collections from the Gentile believers for that impoverished Jerusalem church. This is what the the gospel compels. After all, the gospel is the good news of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. As we close this morning, and this is a a tricky thing to try to navigate. We're we're working through the book of Galatians, and then we're on into the book of James. Some people see those two books as operating not as friends with one another, and yet they very much are friends. I think what's critical, and, and we'll just keep talking about this through our study of both of these books of the Bible, some might say, well, hold on. Are we adding care for the poor to the gospel here? How is that any different? I think Martin Luther, who fought hard for this doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone, the time of the Protestant Reformation, spearheading that effort, that initiative, Luther himself, he, he, he puts it this way, and I think this helps to capture the heart of it. He says, we are justified by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Let me say that again. We are justified by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Meaning that we add nothing in terms of our works-based righteousness to the finished work of Jesus. That it is by faith alone that we are declared in right legal standing before God. But we who have been declared in right legal standing before God by faith alone, nothing else added, That that faith is not alone, Luther says, in that it works itself out. It evidences itself in obedience to Christ. It's why Paul is going to get into in the later part of Galatians what it means to to live by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit. That that Paul's message here of justification by faith alone is is not in opposition to Spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience that works itself out in the Christian life. He's simply saying that let us not, because it's a false gospel, add to the work of Christ as it pertains to what it means to to be in right standing before God himself. And so I would invite us this morning in closing out our time to 
to sit with the question for, for just a minute or two. Um, band's going to come back up and, and give some space, some instrumental background music to, to give us time to sit and to ask, where might I be inclined to veer off the gospel path? And my guess is probably that it's not going to be in creed. It's not going to be if we were asked, hey, what would you put on paper? My guess is that most of us would not put on paper in creedal form. I believe we are saved by faith plus obedience to the law. I think coming back to, to Philip Ryken's quote, I think it's more functional for us. It's how, it's how we, we live this thing out. It's how we take good things and we elevate them to a place of supreme importance and, and, and take personal conviction and make it universal law for everyone around us. There's a, an opportunity for us to, to repent. We'll get deeper into that next week. We see Paul rebuke Peter, not for his gospel doctrine, but before his anti-gospel behavior and practice. Let's invite the Holy Spirit, if he hasn't already, to reveal to us where we might be inclined to veer off of that beaten gospel path. But let's, too, stand at the foot of the cross and, and declare with the Apostle Paul, it is finished. It is finished. There is nothing to add to the work of Jesus. I've used this illustration before, and, and I'll pray and close after saying this. What Paul is arguing for is something greater at stake than if, by way of illustration, someone gave you a signed Mickey Mantle baseball and you determined that it would be a good idea to pull a Sharpie out of the drawer and draw over that signature and add your own to it to improve it. It's a lot of value gone down the drain. So much greater is what's at stake with respect to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's marvel in this gospel. Let's sing this gospel. Let's celebrate this gospel through the, through the receiving of the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to partake of the bread and the cup, but that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That in that you would find life in the sweetness of freedom what it is to stop clawing your way into God's good graces, but to give that up and say, Jesus, you and you alone, I trust in you. I'm done with this rat race. If you are a Christian, we take the bread representing the broken body. We dip it in the cup representing Jesus' shed blood. There are communion tables on either side of the stage. There's a gluten-free table in the back corner there. Whenever you're ready to receive of those elements over the course of these last couple songs between now and the benediction, uh, feel free to partake of communion. As you do, coming back to that imagery of circumcision and its fulfillment in Christ, if I could just remind us one more time and then I'll pray. Christ bore the curse on our behalf. His death becomes our death. His life gives us life. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C R O 
S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.